0: John, I'd like to start it, and I think everybody is, is wondering, as they do each day, each week virtually, uh, how Pat is coming along, and maybe you could just start by just sharing how she's doing. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, she was doing well yesterday. She was feeling as, as well as she has felt, so she asked me to bring her down to the volleyball game last night. So, so we sat here and enjoyed the game last night. That's really the first time that she's been out in public she's been a little fearful of getting around people because if they nudge her she's gotten her her halo off and now she has a little neck brace but uh, she's a little bit frightened having broken her neck that somebody might uh, get too excited and knock into her or something but she ventured out last night Uh, she's improving she uh, has to go back for surgery Um, and we're just waiting now for the scheduling of that surgery Uh, most likely they will go in either through the front of her neck or the back and cut out the bone that is, has grown back wrong and is cutting off her feeling in her hands and feet. And they'll take a bone from her hip and, and replace it. And then put a steel plate in there with four screws. And uh, she'll spend the rest of her life setting off all the x-ray machines at the airport. You know, <laughs> They'll be searching her everywhere to find out where the, the metal is. But um, we're just trusting the Lord for that process. She started in a new rehabilitation uh therapy yesterday and they're trying to get back the complete use of this arm she has increasing use down here but she can't elevate it like this and so it's kind of difficult so we appreciate your prayers and uh, and she's coming along as well as we could possibly hope for god has been very gracious Um, my father called me to say that um, somebody called him and heard uh Someone say in an interview on the radio that uh, she had been miraculously healed And I was so overwhelmed by the miraculous healing that I've now become a charismatic And uh, so he said, my dad called me to see if this was true And uh, I I said, well, I don't don't think so I don't don't think I've... But anyway, we appreciate everybody's prayers uh, But uh, so far there's been no miraculous healing, just normal healing And... uh, some good medical care. We're very grateful for that. I just wanted to say a word in a footnote to Nicaragua. I've always had a special place in my heart for Nicaragua. Um, Some years ago, I had the privilege of being involved in a a nationwide uh, evangelistic crusade in Managua. At the same time, I was involved in some pastoral training. We had several hundred pastors together there for a whole week. And this was when Samosa was still in power. Somoza was a dictator who had been trained, trained, I think, at West Point, very Americanized guy. And he was in the process of uh, making himself rich in Nicaragua, as well as developing the country. Uh, to, get, to give you an idea of, of how things work, um, he owned the Mercedes dealership in Nicaragua. It was the only auto dealership in the country, I think. And all buses and taxis and garbage trucks And public vehicles and official vehicles were Mercedes. Uh, They all bought them from him. All the streets were made out of cobblestones, and he owned the only cobblestone manufacturing plant in Nicaragua. And it went on like that, and on and on and on, and it was a tremendous way to become wealthy. And while it had benefits, in fact, I remember ordering my first hamburguesa con queso at McDonald's in Managua, the first time I'd ever found a McDonald's outside the U.S. in Latin America, uh, there was a huge Sears store there. There was a mall there in Managua. I don't know if it's still there. Um, there was a number of uh, indications of tremendous prosperity, but the abuses by the dictatorship were what typically fomented the communist agitation, and the communists then move in, overthrow the dictator, play on the weaknesses of the system, and then ultimately destroy the country. It's a sad, sad thing. I was looking at the statistics where it said 6.3% would claim to be cr- Christians, and uh, That's a tragic thing, because there was real hope in those early days after that huge campaign where there were maybe 10,000 people a night hearing the gospel that the Lord was going to do something wonderful. And Revolution, of course, has taken a terrible toll, and we need to pray for that country. But that's a pretty typical scenario of what happened in dictatorships in third world countries where communism moved in and just totally tore the country to shreds. It is interesting to see how Catholicism holds its ground. And uh, retains itself because people need something to hold on to that they believe is supernatural. So we need to pray for that country. I've always had such a concern having had such an interesting time myself there. Well, uh, I don't want to talk about what I want to talk about. Dave threatened to make this like uh, Jeopardy. I would answer and you would see if you could think of the question. But I think we'll we'll forego that. And we'll, we'll let you pose the question, and I'll try to give the answer. So if you want to jump up to the... And if you're a little embarrassed about your question, just say the person sitting next to me asked me to ask this question. And you uh, can blame them for it. But uh, So the time is yours, and if you have no questions, we'll uh, just go stand in the rain or something. All right? Yes, give me your name first. Uh, I'm Paul Seitz. I'm a senior here. I'm wondering... Grace Church is a large church. and I know there's a lot of people who have sat under your teaching for many, many years and have done nothing with it. How do you motivate a person who sees the truth, knows the truth, and is apathetic and and won't move on it, won't act on it? Paul, that's a very good question. Uh, Last Sunday night, there was a guy baptized and said he had just come to faith in Christ, but he had been at Grace Church for 10 years. He said, I'm here every week for 10 years, and only now have I become a Christian. Um... Just a a principle, first of all, in answer to your question. The same sun that melts the clay hardens the wax. And people who sit under teaching of God's Word and don't apply it train themselves into apathy. I've often thought that it's better for people not to sit under sound teaching than to sit under it and do nothing about it. Because what they do then... Is is literally create habits of indifference If you can hear the word of God and not apply it and do it long enough you'll habitually do that Better that you never hear the word of God right than that you train yourself to ignore it So the downside of what we the upside of what I do in teaching the word of God year in and year out The upside of the emphasis of Grace Church is that we are teaching people the word of God And the people who apply it have transformed and effective lives the downside is that the more you teach the Word of God to people who continue not to apply it, the more you harden them into an apathetic and indifferent life pattern. That becomes very hard to change. Very hard to change. And then if you're there long enough, you'll see their apathy show up in the second generation and their apathy will show up in the third generation. You see the apathetic children of apathetic Christian parents, then you see the apathetic grandchildren of apathetic, apathetic Christian grandparents. So... Um, You know what I what I say in the answer to what I do about the issue All I can do is teach the Word of God I am not responsible for what you do with it. Is that not true? I'm not responsible for what you do with the Word of God, but you are And there's a component in your life that does work all the time and that is the power of God Two things cause spiritual growth. One is the teaching of the Word of God and two is trials I'll take care of the teaching, but who takes care of the trials? God does. The Lord will do, I believe, what he has to do in the life of a believer through trials and chastening to bring people to the place he wants them to be. So all I can say is, look, I will teach the word of God. I will pray for my people. But it's God who's going to have to force the issue of their application. You may go along a long time and not apply the Word of God, and then your child gets leukemia and dies, and you start to grab for things that you know are true in the Scripture to apply to your sorrow and your and the questions you have in your mind. You may go a long time, and you may not be faithfully applying the Word of God, and your daughter comes home and says she's pregnant, and now you want to come to grips with what went wrong in your life that allowed your daughter to live like that, to get herself into that situation. And so the trials of life tend to jerk the chain. I don't believe it's my job to be a trial for everybody. My job is to teach the word of God. I have to leave the trials of life and the chastenings that come in into our lives to God. And that's his side. All I can do is teach the truth and hope you apply it before God has to force the issue. Okay. Good question. It's always a burden to to any pastor to to see people who don't apply truth. I mean, you don't want that to happen, but it does. Particularly, just a footnote, particularly in a society where you have so much of it I mean, there's so much stuff, tapes and books and preachers and teachers and seminars and Videos and Christian radio and Christian TV, we're just drowning in a sea of data So if you're not going to apply it, you can really become habitually Apathetic because you can just soak up tons of things that you don't apply Ultimately, the the end of that is a disaster in your own life Either the Lord chastens Brings you through trials and you change, or it ends up in a tragedy. Yes? Hi, my name is John. Hi, John. Hi. When sharing about the Bible, how do you defend inerrancy? And how would you, like, if someone was uh, claiming that the Bible wasn't inerrant, how would you share that point? How would I defend inerrancy? Well, to start with, I believe in a presuppositional apologetic. I don't want to get lost in terminology. But I believe in a presuppositional apologetic. And that is, I don't, I don't start with apologetics from a non-presuppositional point. That is to say, there is nothing, so let's prove God. Uh, like, if someone says, well, how do you know there's a God? You can come at it two ways. Way number one would be non-presuppositional, where you assume nothing and you say, okay, um, how can there not be a God? If there's an effect, there has to be a cause, right? If there's a design, there has to be a designer. If there's intelligence, there has to be intelligent source. So you're arguing from cause and effect or from design or from ontology or something. That's, a, that's trying to prove God. The problem with that is it is presuppositional, and you're presupposing that the ultimate authority is the human reason. Right? That sounds reasonable to me. If there's a cause, there has to be an effect. If there's a design, there has to be a designer. So I'm saying, therefore, then if I'm to affirm God, it starts with me because it's my reason then that gives room for God. So what you're saying, if you say you have a non-presuppositional apologetic, is that your apologetic is really presuppositional and you're, you're the presupposition, that your rational mind can comprehend this, therefore it's true. I would rather back away from that and say, I'll take a presuppositional apologetic and it isn't my mind, it's this book. So first of all, I assume this is true. Okay, And I assume it's true by faith. I believe it's true by faith. You say, why do you believe it? Because I have the faith to believe. Where would you get the faith? God gave it to me. Secondly, it claims to be the word of God. Right? I mean, it says it's the word of God. Over and over and over and over and over. The burden of proof, therefore, is on you to prove it isn't. Right? So you take it and you prove it to me that this is not the word of God. That's a pretty formidable task. So the first thing would be, one, I presuppose it's true because I believe it. You know, it is absolutely amazing to me how many times in my life I've heard people say, you know, I was an atheist. I denied God, I denied Scripture, and then one day Jesus saved me, and now I love the Word. That wasn't an intellectual process. That was a miracle of regeneration. And one of the components in regeneration is faith in God and faith in God's Word. There's an immediate confidence in divine revelation granted to the one who is redeemed it's a gift that's part of the composite of faith but secondly it is also true that this book claims to be the word of god and so the burden of proof then is on the person who says it's not to prove that it's not then i would say thirdly there are five lines of evidence that the scripture is in fact what it claims now we'll get to a, a more reasonable approach other than a faith approach or the outright claim of scripture And I would say they go from the worst to the best. I'll give them in reverse order. From the worst to the best. They're all sort of good, but they're in a scale from worst to best. The fifth reason to believe the Bible is experience. Experience. How do I know it's true? Because the Bible said that if I did certain things, there would be certain results. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. The Bible promises that if I put my faith in Christ, my sins are forgiven and I'm free from guilt and the domination of sin. The Bible says that if I come to Christ, I will have a heart for obedience and a love for the scripture and a desire to be with other Christians and and a desire to worship God. And all of that came true in my life. Right? That's experience. My experience tells me that what this book says is true. I did what it said and the effect that it promised happened. How many times have we heard testimonies of people who say, I came to Christ, my life was transformed. Isn't that what the Bible says? If any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. So that, that's, that's one evidence. And you, you hear people say that all the time. You know, look, I mean, I can't argue with your life. I can't argue with your life. I mean, you, your life has changed. You, you, you have somebody in a family. I, I was talking to a, a guy the other day. His wife's not a Christian. He's been saved about six or seven years and I said, does your wife notice the change? She said, yeah, she just doesn't understand it. She just keeps saying, why are you different? What happened to you? What's gone on in your life? You're not the man you used to be. And she even says he's more wonderful than he's ever been. As an individual, as a husband, she's not a Christian. But she can see a transformation. So experience is one way to validate the inerrancy, the authority, the inspiration of Scripture. But it's weak. And it's weak because... Experience has inherent problems. Some people think they see pink elephants, but they don't. And Mormons have experiences, and Jehovah's Witnesses have experience, and Muslims have experiences, and mystics have experiences, and people who do yoga have experiences. And some people think they see the big blue flame in the sky, and it zaps them. Uh, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of weird experiences in mysticism. So while you, you can't necessarily deny the change in a person's life, experience has its weaknesses. Okay, the second coming down the ladder here would be science. If I read an ancient document, any ancient document, generally speaking, I'll find it unscientific. If I read the Bible and I go to the oldest book in the Bible, it says he hangeth the earth on nothing. That is true. If I go to the book of Job, the scripture says the earth is turned like the clay to the seal. That's an interesting statement. Um, In ancient times... They, they, they signed names in soft clay, you know. And they would use a scroll that had embossed letters on it and roll it across the soft clay. And when you roll a scroll across soft clay, you're turning that scroll on its axis. And when the Old Testament says he turns the earth like that seal in the clay, he's saying it rotates on an axis. The Hebrew word klug means sphere. It's used to describe the earth. Listen, up until even the modern era, people thought the world was flat. But the, but the Bible says it's hanging on nothing. It's suspended completely. It's rotating on an axis. And it's spherical. Klug. The, the book of Isaiah describes complete, completely what is called isostasy, which is weight. Now, you understand that the earth goes around. And you understand that it doesn't go around like an oblong basketball. You ever see that cheap basketball your mother bought you and that one end of it popped out and you try to roll it and it goes like that? Well, if the earth wasn't perfectly balanced, we'd be going, we'd all have the hiccups permanently every so often. And so whatever it has to, whatever, whatever perfect balance can be achieved, God has achieved with the height of the mountains and the depths of the sea and the perfect balance of the earth. And the Bible talks all about that. In Psalm 19, the Bible talks about that the sun runs a circuit from one end of heaven to the other. They didn't believe that. They used to believe the sun was the fixed center of the solar system and everything went around it. Now they know the sun moves. Our solar system moves around the sun. But the sun is in an orbit that goes from one end of endless space to the other in a massive orbit moving itself. That's all in Psalm 19. The Bible talks about how the water is taken up from the sea, put into the clouds, carried over the land, dropped back down, runs down into the streams and the rivers, back down into the sea, and follows that same cycle, the water cycle. That Isaiah talks about that. There are numerous things in Scripture that are scientifically accurate, and no ancient people could have known that because scientific discovery hadn't moved to that point. There's a third. Now we're getting better as we move down this little list. The third one is Christ. One of the greatest proofs of the inerrancy of Scripture, the validity of Scripture, is, of course, the focus of all of Scripture is Christ. The Old Testament looks toward Christ. The Gospel records record Christ. And the the epistles look back and explain the meaning of His arrival and His death and resurrection. The book of Revelation talks about the consummation. But Christ is the center and the focal point. Christ, this miraculous incarnate God in human flesh, is inexplicable humanly. In fact, it's inconceivable that man could ever have come up with such an individual. It's inconceivable that men could have ever thought to put in his mouth the words that he spoke because they're beyond human comprehension. And man would never have invented a person like Christ. I'll tell you why. Because they couldn't conceive of such a perfect person. They couldn't make him say such perfect things. And I'll tell you something else. They never would have invented one who condemned every single person to eternal hell who didn't fully believe in him. So the idea that you have an invention like that is impossible. There's no way to explain the words that he said and the works that he did, John's Gospel. How are you going to explain what he said and what he did? That's history. How are you going to explain the empty tomb? How are you going to explain the resurrection? You can't explain Christ other than supernatural. This is the book that perfectly records everything about him. Fourthly, moving up the scale to better things is um, miracles. The whole plethora of miracles in Scripture speak of it as a divine book. And uh, they're all through this book from beginning to end. And they all have eyewitnesses, historic documents, eyewitnesses. This book is a historical record of miracles. And then the best one, the fifth one, the pinnacle is prophecy. How else can you explain the absolute accurate predictions of the future that are all over the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament? Most of the prophecies have already come to pass. Old Testament prophecies came to pass historically, came to pass in the first coming of Christ. Many of the prophecies regarding Christ, of course, came to pass in his first coming. Others will come to pass in his second coming. But the track record is amazing. Prophecies about Tyre and Sidon and Jerusalem and myriad of other things. So when you look at experience and science and Christ and miracles and prophecy, those things give you reasonable evidence inherent in the very pages of Scripture that this is a divine book. If it is a divine book, then authored by God, and it has to be, because nothing can produce transformed lives. Nothing can be so scientifically accurate before man had ever discovered these things. Nothing could have manufactured the person of Jesus Christ other than God himself. The miracles are inexplicable other than supernatural, and no one can predict the future but God. No one knows the future but God. You say this is a divine book. Then you say to yourself, if it's a divine book and written by God, and God says it's it's without error, then it's without error. So that's how you come to the issue of inerrancy, I think. You can quote scriptures like every word of God is pure. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know, in Second Timothy, those kinds of things. So Jesus saying, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from this law till it's all fulfilled. There's a lot of scriptures that's very specific about this. You have in the Old Testament the authentication of the inspiration of some authors by other authors. You have Peter saying, Paul wrote scripture. You know, you so you have internal witness as well. Anyway, that's a long answer. But that's a very important question. The bottom line is it's a matter of faith. That's where it starts. And, you know, a man convinced against his will is unconvinced still. So if you're trying to argue somebody into believing the Bible, you're never going to get them there until the Spirit of God gives them the faith to believe that it's true. Hi, my name's Chris. And uh, I was just um, really thankful for what you said yesterday at, at the seminary. Oh, And uh, I was just... Wondering if you could Obviously you can't spend an hour But really, really quickly just um, Hit the principles that you talked about yesterday Because I thought they were really good And I was just really encouraged Especially in light of the things going on today Thank you Um, Yesterday I I was asked to speak at the seminary And uh, to speak to this issue of Why men default in the ministry That's become very, very prominent And I think Dave Maddox talked about this on Monday Um People have been asking me, how can this happen? You take a person like David Hawking or Mike Kikoros or whoever else. Those are the latest ones that you probably know about. Men that we would consider friends and uh, who would be dear to us. And uh, we would consider them to be servants of the Lord. And then all of a sudden this thing happens. And uh, what is it that, that went wrong? Um, and I tried to answer that from 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn in your Bible uh, to, to get one perspective on it. Obviously, we can cover a lot of things. But 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I, I will take not a long time to do this, but I'll try to do it rapidly. Now, let me just say initially, there's, this is not some kind of an accident that happens. A guy isn't just living his life serving the Lord and all of a sudden he trips one day and lands in adultery. This is not what uh, Galatians would Describe as a paroptima. This isn't the beginning of something This is the end of a long process Of disobedience When it finally gets to the point Where it scandalizes the church It isn't the beginning It's the end you're, You're seeing it for the first time But God's been seeing it for a long time And sometimes others of us Have been seeing it coming for a long time But I want you to notice something That the Apostle Paul says here Very important portion of scripture in chapter 8 verse 12 of 1st Corinthians he says and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against Christ therefore if food causes my brother to stumble I'll never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble now listen to what Paul says he says look if I offend another brother I am literally Sinning against whom? Christ. Therefore, I will not do anything to cause my brother to stumble. I'm not going to do anything that will harm another Christian. That will cause them to trip into sin. I won't do anything. In fact, he says this. I will never eat meat again. Now, is it the sin to eat meat? No. No. But the whole discussion here was about meat offered to idols. What happened was that when you were a pagan, you went to worship your idol at the idol temple. You took a meal down there. You took food. You took a sacrifice. And you put the food on the altar. That's what they did. You can see it at the Buddhist temple on Roscoe Boulevard. You can go down there any day of the week, walk in, you'll see food all over the altar. They're offering it to the gods. You know who eats it? The priests. Because Buddha is nobody. It's a big fat statue who can't open its mouth. So the priests take it and eat it. But it's basically basically assumed to be an offering to Buddha. Well, the pagans have always done that. So they went in the pagan temple, they put the the meat down. You know what? so many people were bringing so much meat that the priests couldn't eat it all. So you know what they did? They ran a temple butcher shop. And what they didn't eat, they sold. And what they sold, people bought. And what the people bought, they ate. So the Christians said, look, should we eat this? I mean, after all, it was offered to an idol. And Paul's answer to that earlier in the chapter is, it doesn't matter. An idol is nothing anyway. Eat up. Have have a great time. It's no big deal. Idols are nothing. It doesn't matter that it was offered to an idol. But if my eating that meat would offend another Christian, I'll be a vegetarian. Now, follow the thought. I have every right to eat meat, but I won't do what I have a right to do if it causes another Christian to stumble. Now, think of that kind of commitment. He's not saying, I don't want to ever sin. I don't want to ever do some sin that will offend another believer. He's not saying that. He's saying, not only do I not want to sin, I won't even do what I have a right to do if it makes another Christian stumble. The man was consumed with making certain that he lived an inoffensive life. That's the kind of commitment you have to have. When a man falls into sin and falls into immorality and falls into iniquity, I'll promise you one thing. He is not thinking at all about living a life that is free of any offense. He is thinking about gratifying his desires, right? That's all he's thinking about. He's thinking about his own lust. Thinking about his own desire. He's not thinking about the woman who is another believer that he is leading into sin. He's not thinking about the offense that it is to her family and her husband and his wife and his children and ultimately all the people who know and the whole church. He doesn't. He's not thinking about how it scandalizes Christianity. He's thinking about his urges, right? Paul says, I'll never do anything to offend another Christian. Certainly not to sin willfully to offend another Christian. Not even to use my liberty to do what I have a right to do. See, your life is a product of your commitments. That was Paul's. Go down to verse 12 of chapter 9. Let's take it a step further. Verse 12 of chapter 9, he says this. At the end of the verse. We endure all things. I go through everything. And he did, believe me. He endured Every imaginable difficulty. We endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Here's the second point. I will never do anything in my life knowingly, willingly, that would hinder my opportunity to preach Christ to the lost. Right? That's a commitment you make. Any man who scandalizes the church, any man who lives sinfully, immorally, and does that kind of stuff, or any woman, really is in effect saying, look, my body wants this. I have a desire for this. I really don't care at this moment what happens in regard to the unsaved. What do you think the unsaved people who've been witnessed to by someone who falls into sin think? They think Christianity is a joke, right? Naming the name of Christ is, what does that mean? So he says, one, I will never do anything to cause another Christian to stumble. Two, I will never do anything to hinder the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three, verse 15 of chapter 9. End of the verse. It would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Well, what a statement. Who was Paul's boast? What did Paul boast in? What? Christ, right? He said that. I boast in the Lord. And he said, I would rather be dead than for someone to say his boast was nothing but empty words. He's a hypocrite. I'd rather be dead. For the sake of the believer, I will not sin. Willingly. For the sake of the unbeliever, I will not scandalize. For my own integrity's sake, I will not be a hypocrite. And then in verses 16 and 17, he adds the fourth component. He says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And then at the end of verse 17, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Who gave him that stewardship? God did. For God's sake. For God's sake i won't defect and scandalize the ministry for the for my own integrity's sake for the sake of the lost for the sake of the saved verse 19 sums it up the second statement in verse 19 i have made myself a slave to all he had a servant mentality Paul wasn't saying, how can I serve myself? How can I gratify my desires? How can I fulfill my longings? How can I satiate my lusts? How can I do what feels good? How can I do what I want to do? Not at all. He was saying, how can I lead believers to maturity? How can I win unbelievers to Christ? How can I maintain the integrity of my own boast in Christ? And how can I fulfill my stewardship to God? See, it's that level of commitment that puts the foundation on which you live down. And any time you see someone who falls into sin, scandalizes Christians, scandalizes non-Christians, demonstrates hypocrisy, and literally defies his divine stewardship, you see someone who failed to make and keep those commitments. You say, "Well, how do you keep them?" Well, go to verse twenty-four. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises, here it is, self-control. He was committed to self-control, which meant he was committed to self-denial. He was willing to deny himself certain things and to bring himself under control. He says in verse 27, here's a key verse. I buffet my body. Literally, that word in the Greek means I give it a black eye. I punch it. It's a strong word. And I make it my slave. I will not be a victim of my desires. I will not pander my lusts. Because if I do, after I preach to others, I will be disqualified. And that's exactly what's happened. These men are disqualified. They've preached to others. But they are adakimas, tested and found unqualified. Because they didn't exercise self-control in the power of the Holy Spirit. What are the means to self-control? Intense time in the Word. Faithful and constant prayer. Accountability. All of those things. So I don't, these aren't accidents. that just You don't just go sailing through, the, through your ministry and all of a sudden, kablam, you're caught in a massive scandal. Way back somewhere, the foundation is eroded. You say, well, how does it erode? I'll tell you how it erodes. You get a temptation the first time you're tempted and you're with a, a lady that maybe is attractive to you and so... You do some little thing and she likes it and you like it and it felt good and God didn't kill you. You're still alive. Not only that, you preached real good the next Sunday and some people got saved. You say, Well, that was no big deal, and then you decide you're also under grace. And so the next time you're together, you do it again, and God doesn't kill you then, and then a little more, and she liked it, and you liked it, and and pretty soon you're, you're still alive, and everything seems to be fine, and nobody knows, and now you are pandering, and your desire is moving rapidly, and you go further and further and further, and it's the old frog in the kettle deal, before you know it, you're boiled. And it all begins because somehow there was an erosion of those foundational principles that say my life will be under the control of God's spirit. I will deny my flesh its hankerings for the sake of the church, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of my own integrity, and for the sake of my God whose stewardship I bear. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. I talked to my father on the phone last night. He's 78 years old. He's been a faithful man of God all my life. I have never known him to do one thing in all my life to discredit his Christian testimony. Uh, he is the man in the home that he is in the pulpit. I have never seen any difference in his life. It is inconceivable to him that a man could do this because he has commitments that control his life. This is the time in life to make those kinds of commitments. It doesn't have to happen. I said to the elders at Grace Church the other night because I wanted them to know this. I said, men, I want to say to you that by the grace of God and the mercy of God and the strength of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, there isn't one woman on the face of the earth who could ever stand up and say, I did this with John MacArthur. There's only one woman who's ever been in my life, and that's my wife. There is not one woman anywhere on the face of this earth. I don't want you men to be worrying that somewhere, some lady's going to pop up and say, I got some some stuff to tell you about him. There isn't one anywhere. And it's not because I'm invincible, and it's not because I'm more holy than others. It's because when I was young, I set a foundation for life and a pattern, and I have done the best I can in my own human weakness to stay in the Word and in prayer and committed to the Lord and highly accountable to the people who care for me so that God in His grace could preserve me for His kingdom purposes. I don't commend myself for that because if it were left to me, I would fail like everybody else. But it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen, if the foundation is right. Well, that was what I said yesterday in short form. Thanks for asking. Hi, my name is Laura Canning. I have a question. Um, My grandparents are Lutherans, and they have been um, forever. And I was just wondering, they know that we go to Masters and that we're not Lutherans and that we're active in Christianity, but how do... Um, What are some practical ways that I can show my parents that there's more to it than just going to church on Sunday and tithing? The Lutheran Church, um, interestingly enough, has a, a great history, obviously, by its name, but has developed, I guess what you could call a sacramental, I guess this would be the church history title, a sacramental form or a sacerdotal form of religion, basically, Eliminating the personal relationship with God and substituting a surrogate kind of Christ, namely the sacraments uh, as ministered by the church. And consequently, there are many, many people in the Lutheran church who, who are connected to the church. They have a surrogate Christ, the church, but they don't have Christ. They're tied into the tradition. They, they like the conversation about God and the Lord Jesus they do not understand the gospel. Of course, recently you know that some segments of the Lutheran Church have affirmed that homosexuals, lesbians, and gays are unique creations of God and all of that kind of thing. So part of it is, is way out liberal. Some in, the, some in the Lutheran Church are still strongly evangelical. There are still some very evangelical, biblically faithful Christians in the Lutheran Church. But I would say the great middle part of the Lutheran Church would be typically made up of people who, who are attached to the church and a certain vocabulary of God and Christ, but don't understand the personal aspect of it. And I I really believe that that what needs to be done in the case of those people is a loving move from a conversation about who Christ is to how He works in your life. How are you related to Christ? You know, I mean, I think it, it should be a very natural conversation to say, you know, you're in the church and I'm in the church and I'd like to know, I know how my relationship with Christ is and I'd like to know what your relationship with Christ is like. Tell me, give me your testimony, share with me. Don't put them on the defensive, put them on the offensive and let them describe to you the character of their relationship to Jesus Christ. You'll be able to discern from that what it is. And then you just have to pray and ask God to give you the opportunity to try to move them from what it is to what it ought to be. If it comes short. And it may be that they are Christians. It may be that they have saving faith, but don't understand anything beyond that. So I but let them go on the offense. I can learn more about a person's Christianity by just saying to them, describe your relationship to the Lord. And, you know, you know, whether they know what they're talking about or whether it fits what you know to be true. But I know that's a burden. And it's sometimes very difficult because they have such a, a sense of being Christian. Because they're in it up to here. But the the real relationship doesn't exist. And that's a tremendous challenge. Hello, Dr. McGrath. My name is Lauren. My question is, I've seen a lot of men build big churches and, you know, schools and stuff like that. My question is, what are you doing to make sure that, you know, when you die, we don't want you to die today, but when you do die. Give me another Grace, Grace community will continue on and so will the Masters College. And the hardest part is answered in two minutes. Yeah, Okay. All right, I'll do that. Um, fortunately, I've only been at the Master's College for eight years, and it's been here how many? Seventy? Since 1927. So uh, it was here long before I came. It'll be here long after I went. All I did basically was change the name <laughs> with the agreement of the board. Uh, but uh, so this school will we'll go on and on. It's a, there's a strong board here of godly men who give great leadership. Um, the Lord has used these years in unique ways to strengthen, establish, and expand and build, but the future is very bright. I want you students to know, and I think it's wonderful to be able to say this, we closed last year uh, with a balance in the, in the budget. We closed in the black by over $100,000. We believe we have a balanced budget this year. So from a financial standpoint, God has been good. Um, our plan is to, uh, we asked our faculty to take sacrifices and in their salary cuts, and the plan is now to reinstitute those, to give those back next year, and we're moving on that plan. God is blessing. Uh, there's a tremendous strength of leadership here, so I'm not worried about me in relation to this. In relation to, to Grace Community Church... Um, I basically teach the Bible I'm not involved in all of the intricacies of the church That's carried on by a multiplicity of men and women who serve the Lord there I basically teach the Word of God and I think the foundation in the Word is strong enough The church's strength comes out of the scripture, not out of me I think in the early years, the first four or five years, I was kind of a personality that drove it I don't think that's true anymore I think it's primarily the the strength of the Word of God and the multiplicity of, of godly people so when I pass from the scene, I think the church will maintain its commitment to the Word of God, and the Lord will bring another leader to, to carry on that ministry. I, I, I can only do what God allows me to do in my lifetime. And then you have to leave it uh, to those that go behind. I mean, that was what Paul was so concerned about in leaving the legacy to Timothy and to Titus. And I've tried to build myself into young men who can carry on the work, as Paul did. Uh, but there are no guarantees. You know, that's all in the plan and purpose of God. But I think... I think I'm less crucial to Grace Church now than I've ever been and I'm less crucial to the Master's College than I've ever been. Uh, where I am somewhat crucial is to the radio program because that's just me talking. So if I'm not there, nobody's talking. So, uh, so when I go, maybe they'll play tapes even though I'm dead. And I'll, be, I'll be like J. Vernon McGee, who is dead yet speaks. Good morning, John. It's a great privilege to have this opportunity to Ask you this question. Um, I was wondering if you could just share with us what you know about the, what the Bible teaches concerning the age of accountability and what happens to to babies or, or small children that don't know the Lord and, and, and perish. Sure. Okay. The, the um, I don't think the age, the age of accountability is not a biblical term. There's no fixed age of accountability. What, what the question really says is when is a person old enough to make a genuine commitment of saving faith? That's what you're really asking. At what point in life can someone be genuinely converted? The answer is, when they fully understand sinfulness of sin, repent from it, fully understand the sacrifice and significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and embrace it by faith and confess Jesus as Lord. They must understand enough about sin to know that they are worthy of condemnation. They must understand enough about sin to know that it displeases God. They must have a longing to depart from sin, which is the drive toward repentance and the reason you seek forgiveness. And they must understand the truth about Christ and then confess him as Lord. At what age can that occur? Um, That's hard to answer. Uh, If you go back into the Jewish history, you will note that at the age of 12, they had what's called bar mitzvah, which means a son of the law. Even women were brought through that, called a daughter of the law. Um, And a bar mitzvah was a recognition by the Jewish culture that the person had reached adulthood, at least enough adulthood to be responsible for their action. You remember that Jesus was in the temple at the age of 12, and by the time he was 12, he was confounding the doctors there. You say, yeah, but he was God. Yes, but remember, he hadn't fully arrived as a mature individual because he was still growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So there was, there was an actual growing in the life of Jesus Christ, even though he was God incarnate. That's a mystery. But the point being that by the time he was 12, he was able to deal with spiritual matters and spiritual issues. If you follow that pattern that you see in the Old Testament... It's, uh, it's probably fairly safe to say that by the time a young person reaches the age of 12 or around that period of time, they are mature enough to comprehend the truth, which is related to salvation. Furthermore, I believe that salvation is an adult decision. In other words, you have to be adult enough to have, have understood the components that I've articulated. I don't think a three-year-old does. I don't think a five-year-old does. It's questionable whether a seven- or an eight-year-old does, maybe on a rare occasion. You say, well, shouldn't you tell your children to ask Jesus in their heart? Sure. All of those times when you encourage them to trust Christ and love Jesus and so forth are steps toward God. At what point that step becomes a saving step, God knows. The age of accountability for someone might be beyond 12. For others, it might be below. God knows when the point of accountability is reached. God knows when those steps toward God become saving steps. That's, that's for him to know. He knows who the elect are, and he knows when the elect have come to the point where they can exercise saving faith. I don't know that. But I, don't, I know this. If I go into a, a school of five-year-olds, I go into a kindergarten class and ask them, tell them about Jesus and how much he loved them. And he loved them so much that he died for them. And he was the one who did miracles and tell the story of Jesus and ask how many would like to know Jesus. Personally, every little kid in the place will say he would because they don't understand the implications of that. Um, people say, well, I was saved at my mother's knee at five. The reason you think you were saved at your mother's knee at five is because your mother told you that, not because you remember the the fullness of salvation occurring in your life and the transformation. It's been reinforced by your parents for the most part. And generally speaking, people who say, well, I was saved at five will come back and say, yeah, but I never got serious about my faith until I was 15, 17, 24. There was a point somewhere later on where they came to grips with the reality of salvation. What happens to children who die, you know, the Scripture isn't explicit, but it is implicit, I think. David's son died, and David said, he cannot come to me, but I shall go to him. Remember the little son he had from Bathsheba died, and he said, he can't come to me, but I shall go to him. Now, you could say that all that means is he went into the grave and I'm going there too, but it seems to me he's talking about a reunion. And so his confidence was that little one was in the presence of the Lord, and there's no editorial comment in Scripture to say he was wrong about that. So the assumption you can make is that when his little son died, he went into the presence of the Lord, and David had the confidence there would be a reunion there. Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He could have been talking purely about uh, spiritual children. But I think there's something more there, the implication that these little ones have a unique place in the kingdom. And I believe that we... There are several options. One... You can say, elect babies go to heaven, non-elect babies go to hell when they die. The problem with that is, election is always confirmed by what? By saving faith. There is no one who who is elect and therefore enters into heaven by sheer election. It's always confirmed by saving faith. Another view is that any baby that dies before it can reach the age of accountability and get saved wasn't elect. So the only babies that die are the non-elect. Another option is... The since salvation is confirmed by faith and since damnation is confirmed by unbelief You'll die in your sins because you believe not on me a baby that dies Didn't confirm saving faith and also didn't confirm damning unbelief Therefore they remained in the state of innocency and in that state of innocency will be treated by God's grace That's the one that I would choose Okay Good question Hi, my name is Brett Bonecutter and uh I've just been wondering whether or not the modern day seminary slash Bible college is a parachurch, thus overstepping the mandate for the church to equip the saints. Uh, In the first place, there's no reason to assume that parachurch is wrong or that it oversteps anything. Um, All para means is to come alongside, and there are a myriad of ministries that have Come alongside the church. I mean, you, you certainly would say the Apostle Paul had a parachurch ministry. Uh, he wasn't a local pastor, particularly. He was a traveling itinerant spiritual leader. Timothy had, in, in some ways, a, a, a ministry alongside the church. Titus had a ministry alongside the church. Uh, in the book of Acts, you have the apostles and prophets ministering alongside the church. Um, certainly from the standpoint of, of historic missions, uh, You have a church that sends missionaries out to establish indigenous churches, nationalize those churches, and then work alongside. There's nothing wrong with working alongside the church. The best, the leading parachurch ministry that I know of in the world is operated by the Holy Spirit. He is the true para-cleat. He comes alongside to assist the church. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder or a deacon, but he works alongside the church, obviously. There's nothing wrong with that. If it's done right... I see a school like this as providing an educational service. It is, by definition, not a para-church ministry. It is an educational institution that is distinctively Christian because we have a Christian perspective. We aren't the church. We don't try to be the church. We aren't a substitute for the church, nor do we ignore the church. We try to strengthen Christians for work in the church. So in that sense... It's the best kind of parachurch ministry. I see a missionary agency like Send International working alongside churches here to get their people to foreign fields alongside churches on the foreign field to strengthen their leadership. The kind of ministry that I don't like is anti-church. You have that, for example, going on in Russia right now, where you have a mass of people moving in over there who want nothing to do with the church. They say, it's full of old ladies, we don't want to deal with them, we're going to do our own deal, we're going to start our own thing, we're going to plant our own churches, and so forth and so on. And the church is grieved over that, they're going to have to pick up the pieces of it. You have ministries, many ministries, where the leadership of the ministry has no accountability to local church. You remember the Apostle Paul was sent by the church in Antioch, right? And he had an affiliation and a responsibility both to the church in Antioch and the Council of Jerusalem. And I think it's very, very important, particularly with the independent churches flourishing in America where we don't have a denominational, we don't have any accountability. Everybody can be a loose cannon if they want to be. We need to make sure that anywhere we go in any ministry we do, whether it's a radio ministry or writing books or being in a Christian college or whatever it might be that comes alongside the church, that there be a high level of accountability to the local church. In the case of the Master Seminary, Obviously, the link with the Grace Community Church is very intense. That's why we keep the campus there, because we want the oversight of our elders and our pastors on the lives of those men preparing for ministry. And the same is true here. There are a number of churches that are represented in our faculty here, and while there, there is a certain spiritual accountability that our faculty and staff have to the administration, they also have it to their own shepherds and their own pastors and their own elders and their own church. And we're not operating independent of the church. We're just extending the ministry of the church into education, into media, to missions, and whatever it might be. That's a very good question. It's the attitude of the organization and where their heart is with relationship to the church. Okay? Yes? Yeah, um, my roommates and I were talking um, the other day about whether we thought um, God would... God is... A, um, not able, obviously he's able, but would, is he involved in blessing... Um, non-believers, and the verse that we had um, looked at was Matthew ten forty one. It says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man re- man's reward. It's a good it's a good question. And the answer is, I do believe that God does temporally, temporally, in an earthly sense, bless people who care For those who represent him. I'll tell you another passage. If you're going to carry on your discussion. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. And notice there that an unbelieving partner in a marriage. Is sanctified by the believing partner. That's the same concept. If you're a non-Christian. And you're married to a Christian. You're going to get blessed just with a spillover. As God pours that blessing on a Christian husband, his unconverted wife reaps the blessings of God's work in that that Christian husband's life. If you have a Christian wife and God blesses her life, the husband is going to reap the benefit of of God's work in her life. And I think that's right. I think the, the promise in that text of Matthew 10 is that God will demonstrate temporal favor, temporal blessing on those who demonstrate concern and care for those who are his. I think that's true. Let me go one step further and say this. God is under no obligation to bless an unbeliever. God is under no obligation to answer their prayers. But God, in what would be called common grace, who makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and makes the world pleasant for everybody, will pleasantly bless, in some way, some unbelievers... Just because he chooses to in some case. In other cases, because they are associated intimately with Christians that he is blessing. In other cases, because they have been favorable to those who represent him. Good. Well, I think our time is gone. That's good. Do we have one question just kind of burning a hole in someone's uh, mind? Or you want to go ahead and fire that one and we'll, we'll end at this? Um, my name is Sam. Um, just hopefully if this is quick. Um, in terms of the, the end times, can you define in... Precise terms, the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. Yes, I think the wrath of God is a a general concept that describes God's fury poured out on the unbelievers. I think the wrath of God, if you want a context quickly, the wrath of God begins with the opening of the first seal in Revelation chapter 6. That's where the wrath of God begins. The day of the Lord, I don't think technically really hits until the sixth seal. Because the day of the Lord is wholesale. What you have then up until the day of the Lord is some preliminary judgments. This is typically the pattern in the Old Testament. If we had time, I could show you in Ezekiel and other places where you have the day of the Lord, the historical day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a historical term. It can refer to things in the past. There is an ultimate day of the Lord, but every day that's the day of God's vengeance is the day of the Lord. In prior historical days of the Lord, there would be judgments leading up to the day of the Lord. There would be obvious acts of God punishing unbelievers, and then the full fury would hit. And I think that's the pattern in the time of the tribulation. The opening of the first seal kicks off the wrath of God with the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse. The first four things, which Matthew 24 calls the birth pangs or the beginning of the birth pangs, that is the beginning. The fifth seal is persecution. The sixth seal, wham, the day of the Lord hits. The sky goes black. The sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. Here He comes. This is the day of the Lord. But the prior things are the wrath of God and not the wrath of man. There is an emphasis today trying to, trying to make the first part of the tribulation the wrath of man. Why? Because Christians have been promised to be delivered from the wrath of God. And there, there are some people who want to keep us in the tribulation but get us out of the wrath of God. So they don't want the wrath of God to start until the sixth seal and they want to rapture us before the sixth seal. And so they say, well, the first part is the wrath of man. It's not the wrath of man. It's the seven-sealed seven book. It's in the hand of Almighty God. It's taken out of his hand by the Lamb, and it's executed by the Lamb. It's not the wrath of man. It's the wrath of God. So if we're going to be saved in that sense from the wrath of God, we're going to be saved from all the tribulation, and that's why some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Do you understand? Okay. All right. That's a little quick shot there. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, thank you for our time this morning and for this just great, great opportunity to talk about your precious word and to look into it and find answers for what's on our heart. I thank you for these wonderful young people, for their eagerness to know your word, for the hunger in their hearts to know it accurately and to live it out. Father, I pray that there would be no one here who doesn't know the Savior. There would be no one here who is training himself or herself in a pattern of of indifference or apathy to your truth. But, oh, God, in this very wonderful opportunity and environment where your word is central and taught faithfully, may they apply it in their lives that they might live fruitfully and joyfully and blessedly under your care. And we commit all of these young people and all of our folks here, staff and faculty, into you, into your hands, asking only that what we do would bring you praise for our Savior's sake. Everyone say, Amen. Amen.